Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Before we start, if this is your first time listening to the 10% Happier podcast, A, welcome. And B, if you like the show, do me a favor. Take a second and subscribe, rate the podcast, and if you really want to hook me up, tell some friends about how they too can find us. Now here's the show. From ABC... This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. All right, so we're going uh, timely and topical on this episode. This is like an emergency edition of the of the podcast. Uh, we're in the midst of one of the ugliest elections anybody can remember, and people are freaking out. Uh, one shrink has even coined a term for this, election stress disorder. Uh, here are some numbers from my crack research team. 60% of Americans say they're exhausted by the name-calling. 25% of American workers say they feel less productive and more stressed at their jobs because of political discussions in the workplace. 50% of Americans say the prospect of a Clinton presidency makes them anxious. 70% say so for Trump. 7% of Americans say they have ended friendships over this election. Uh, Doctors and mental health workers around the country are reporting that their patients are exhibiting symptoms such as anxiety, powerlessness, anger, aggressive driving, increased tensions within marriages, difficulty sleeping, higher blood pressure, heart palpitations, stomach problems, and I love this one, compulsive cleaning. Not a problem I've had. Uh, As a remedy, many doctors are actually publicly recommending and privately meditation. So uh, we've recruited three meditation teachers to record special nonpartisan guided meditation teachers for people who are stressed out by the election. And we're posting them for free on the 10% Happier app. You can download the app in the uh, Apple App Store, uh, and the meditations will be right there for you to use for free. And if you don't have an Apple device, you can get the meditations at 10percenthappier.com. And on this podcast today, we have two of the teachers who have recorded those meditations uh, here to discuss the issue, along with a reporter from The New York Times who covers the meditation scene. Uh, They are Sharon Salzberg, co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society and author of such amazing books as uh, Real Happiness and Real Happiness at Work. Hello. Hello. Uh, Joanna Harper, guiding teacher at a meditation organization called Against the Stream. She also works with at-risk youth. Hi. Hi. Uh, I just want everybody to hear their voices just so they can (laughs) tell them apart as as we go through this. And David Gellis, who's a New York Times reporter, just started a mindfulness column, which is called... Meditation for Real Life. All right. And uh, I like that. He's a longtime meditator, author of Mindful Work, which is about how businesses are adopting mindfulness. And I just should say for the record, there's another teacher, uh, the amazing Jeff Warren, who's also recorded some meditations for us that will be up on the 10% Happier app. But he's uh, up in Canada. Jeff is amazing. And we're actually going to have him on for a full show uh, at some point. Um, all right, guys, after that long introduction, let's get down to it. Sharon, let me start with you. How do you think meditation can help? What's the name of the disorder? <laughs> Election stress disorder. Okay. I don't think uh, – it's not in the, uh, like, f- physician's desk reference or anything at this not point. Yet. Not official, but uh, nonetheless, people are upset. What, is, yeah. Do you think meditation I, – I assume the answer is yes, but how can meditation help? I think meditation can help in a, a couple of different ways. One is I think when we look at some really painful feelings like anxiety and fear and um, – we have an ability to understand them more. So for me, I would say that the worst part of my own fear uh, when I get lost in it is is a certain uh, sense of helplessness. That's the hardest part. And I know that from just sitting and being with fear and coming to understand it more, that's something I need to do is find the one small thing I can do. Not obsessive cleaning thus far, <laughs> but, you know, uh, maybe it's uh, – 
urging other people to vote or it you know it's something about engagement of whatever kind uh or just um reflection on what's really important to me something like that and i can remember to breathe because in that kind of hyper state of uh doom you know anticipating the worst uh remembering that actually i am existing right here now that none of that has happened it's all conjecture and that if i can breathe i can come back to to this moment Joanna, how do you think it can help? Yeah, I, I'm going to agree with that. I was really reflecting on what happened when Y2K happened I, and how s- terrified people got by something that hadn't happened yet and how we planned and plotted. And it was really going to be the end of the world, you know, when that came around. So just really watching how catastrophizing and how a timeline arises when we get into any strong emotions. It's usually futuring in some sort of way towards a reality that hasn't happened yet. So paying attention to um, what you know, who you know, what's happening now, and breath is a great way to do it, and, and engaging in a reality now that could be helpful Versus just getting into the probable and possible dystopic uh, future that we start to think is is really going to happen. It's my favorite. It's fantasy. It, yes. Um, <laughs> it's my favorite Buddhist term. Actually, I learned it from you, Sharon. Uh, uh, prapancha, which means prapancha. the imperialistic tendency of mind. mind. Right. It's amazing. Proliferation. So, yeah. so we, you know, we we have a data point in the present moment. So maybe it's a the, the latest poll numbers. And we just make we we colonize the future with our concerns, and we we, we don't have we have some factual basis for it, but minimal factual right. basis for it. And you could in many of these cases, that kind of the movie making that we're doing, this uh, horror movie making that we're doing, is just not very useful, and just driving us crazy. So, um, David, let me ask you just as a starter question. Um, I, I know you're not a meditation teacher, but you've been doing it for a while. So, how, does meditation help you when you get anxious about this election? Yes, and and one of the specific ways is that the med- the election season has been characterized by so much divisiveness, and there's so much sense of of otherness between, be it the two parties or between otherness between myself and people who don't seem to agree with me. And one of the things that meditation I've found can be very helpful with is by reestablishing the sense of commonality and meta meditation, loving kindness. I mean, we have the expert here at the table is one really amazing way of just reminding ourselves that, in fact, uh, we are all going through many of these same emotions together, which starts to reestablish like this common baseline of shared humanity, which I think is very easy to lose sight of. And there's a wonderful phrase that comes up in teachings, just like me. And when I have found myself on the opposing side of an argument or the table with someone who I might disagree with, or even on social media seeing them, one of the things I've been trying to do is remind myself, you know, just like me, these people have strong views. They may be wrong, but just like me, (laughs) (laughs) they're going through this too. And that's helped at least start to reestablish some humanity in what can otherwise become this uh, highly polarized, almost purely conceptual uh, you know, t- form of tension. I mean, I don't even have the words to articulate the way in which my body has experienced some of the anxiety. But in that very specific way, meditation has been helping me lately. So you you were saying before we started recording that, that notwithstanding decades of meditation practice, you actually unfriended somebody because of their political views. Yeah, they were posting relentlessly uh, on the other side of the aisle. And it was... 
provoking real strong negative emotions in me. And even even because the other training you have for decades is as a reporter and and uh, you know it's a it nonpartisan uh, fair reporting and yet on your own social media feed you couldn't abide it. And I think one of the reasons it was so hard is because it was someone who I believed or had convinced myself was uh, uh, you know my my peer not only in terms of um, you know someone I might hang out with, but also somehow in in um, you know, orientation and political orientation, and the the kind of shock and the relentless uh, promotion of their views, which I strongly disagree with, was uh, it rattled me. It rattled me, and I'm not saying that the skillful thing to do was to unfriend them. <laughs> Maybe I should have just muted them until after the election. Um, but but for whatever reason, that that's where I went with it. So I don't know which social network you were using, um, but does this person know that you unfriended them? I hope not. Okay. So you don't, you're not you're not looking for some permanent schism here, or maybe you are. So it will be interesting the next time I see this person in person, whether or not we need to have a conversation, and and if so, how I can do that in a way that is respectful. I think it's going to be difficult. Yeah, yeah. Back to the teachers now. I Karen, think I just failed a test. No, 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 no. You, you <laughs> Not proved, at all. You proved Not that, that even uh, – I hope I really didn't make you feel that way because I, I always just like to point out that you can do a lot of meditation and still be pretty deeply flawed, hence my whole 10% thesis. Um, Thank you, Dan. You're welcome. <laughs> Uh, even if we disagree politically, which we might, um, uh, I still love you. Um, Sharon, you have made uh, uh, a career of really promoting a specific kind of meditation called compassion or meta meditation, but also known as loving kindness, sometimes called compassion meditation. There, there's some gradations in there. I don't want to get too <laughs> much in the weeds. But this is a kind of meditation where you really do try to generate feelings of warmth for um, yourself, for uh, other people in your life who are who have been benefactors or close friends, and then also for difficult people, and then of course for everybody. So in a systematic way, you kind of envision these beings and send them uh, goodwill. Could this be useful in the current uh, electoral climate? Oh, it's fantastic! I want to go back to to David because I don't think you failed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> speaking of loving kindness for oneself, I don't think you failed at all. I mean, there's. Um, I think it would be fascinating when you see this person again because uh, there are these moments when we are more um, – we're kind of lost in a kind of ideological or or particular uh, kind of fixation about somebody. And then there are these moments where we register like human being. They want to be happy just as I do. They're vulnerable to change, to loss, to life like falling apart just like I am. And and it's just these moments. It doesn't mean that you agree or that you let go of what you feel is right or wrong or, you know, sense of principle. But but there's a real caring that emerges. And I would not be surprised at all if in that moment of actually coming together, should you come together again physically, um, that there is that. So uh, loving kindness is not an easy thing to understand because I think we do tend to confuse it with giving in and and saying it doesn't matter, you know, what I believe, what I hold really dear. Because um, it's not just positionality. These are uh, sometimes these views are are very deeply held because of things we've witnessed, you know, suffering we've seen or 
or ways we feel we or our neighbors or people are unheard. And, um, you know, they, they come from a very deep place sometimes. It's not just having a view. And, uh, you know, to, to recognize that in somebody and um, is, is something that's very important. And, you know, and to understand it doesn't mean you like somebody and it doesn't mean that you uh, are going to invite them to move in or that you're going to say, yes, I'm doing everything exactly your way or anything like that. And uh, it's not a weakness. It's a tremendous power to have the sense of caring for others and yourself. So you're going to you're going to literally go from this radio studio in which we are recording this podcast to another studio where you're going to record the guided meditations yeah. for the app. Well, and I don't want to put too much pressure on you because you may not even know what you're going to do. But well, I just be curious because we spoke in general terms about the fact that meditation could be useful for people who are freaking out yeah. about the election. What would what would the concrete advice be that you would give to somebody who right now needs an intervention? <laughs> well, the first thing I'm going to do is about papancha. It's about proliferation or that imperialistic tendency of mine is to see that we have a certain situation right now and we do catastrophize and we've cascaded and to see if we can reel it back to what this is what's actually happening right now. And then for me, you know, going back to what I said before, um, understanding the nature of the feelings. It's like look deeper. You know, it's not just what's happening right in the moment um, on the surface. But look deeper into into what's going on. Like, as I've looked more deeply into my own fear, and I've seen that kernel of helplessness, I, I come to understand that that's that's the bitterest part in a way. That's what I have to address, um, because the rest is just a feeling. It's something that's arising, and and that uh, if I look at the rage, you know, and the um, the sense of division and anger that comes up, uh, and I look more deeply into that, then then I often see a kind of um, sense that I'm not seen. You know, I've, I've somehow been obliterated or uh, my view doesn't count, you know, and so I get more hyped up around that. And and I really uh, I really put that on my meditation practice, that, that training. Just look deeper. Look into your experience. I just find that for me, you know, I've gone through various stages of stress over the election, but for me it's really about just how – low the whole th we've gone and how angry people are and how divided we are. It's less for me about um, individual candidates right now than it is about the overall scene. I don't know if that resonates with you at all. Yeah, it, it resonates. Well, and what would you tell me to do about it? Oh, <laughs> uh, I think uh, it's a combination of being able to sit with your feelings so that you're not driven to something like obsessive cleaning, you know. Well, and, I, I think I'd probably be driven to like curling up in a ball and trying to pretend it's not there. Yeah, well, that that's another problem. You know, it's like the the movement into apathy or yeah. denial you know, is, is not very healthy either. So uh, that's why we talk about mindfulness the way we do. We say it avoids two extremes. One is being swept up in a feeling so that you're defined by it. And the other extreme is denial and, and dissociation and rejection. And so being able to be there and connect to the feeling. And um, I would say again, you know, it's like it's not enough to lament in our time, like uh, what we've come to, you know, nobody knows civics anymore. You know, uh, look at the tone of dialogue. It's, it's not enough. I mean, if we can hang in there with the really uncomfortable feelings, uh, very often there's a path to one small action we can take and, and another and another. And then 
there's there's a much greater sense of fulfillment from that than from well, you probably don't do this, but from writing another furious tweet, you know. Or, yeah, I or mean, whatever. I'm a journalist, so I don't yeah. really I don't really get involved in the. Um, I mean, I'm covering the campaign. So I don't really get involved yeah. in. Can't, you know, uh, picking a side. Um, but I do, as an American, f- have feelings about the sort of nature of the the venomous nature of the dialogue and how much anger and hatred is out there. Um, all right. So, Joanna, you have just come from the uh, recording studio where you recorded some meditations for the app about, you know, how to how to deal with what's it called? Uh, election stress disorder. <laughs> what What are you advising people? Yeah, I mean, what I spoke about there were really identifying our core values, you know, because there's this way that we can get swept up in sides and identities that really actually might be far from where we are and what we stand for and what we actually want. So through personal practice, really, really connecting to what, who am I? What do I want? What do I want to support and be active in? So that's one of the things I spoke about. And I, and I stand behind that because it might mean that we're not on either side, right? So it might mean this election is going to happen. Somebody's going to win. And then what? You know, what is the, what's the possibility that comes beyond this one date, this one name? Um, and I think there's a lot of possibility in there. I think that there's a, lot of, there's a lot we can do. And coming in touch with our core values is really important there. And then another piece that I spoke about was this idea of forgiveness and sort of like David was talking about, these are other human beings. We all suffer. We all want to be happy. We all would like to move forward in a country that works for us. And um, how can we not carry that burden around in a way that we don't really need to in our hearts? I mean, hatred running the show as we've seen, is not the right way to go, and it's not what I'm interested in. So, um, working on a working on a way not to have to condone, or to accept, or agree with, but what's it like not to have to completely separate and disconnect from, you know, possibly half of the other people that live in this country. Right. But also, you know, uh, race and religion have become big parts of this campaign. Um, and so I would imagine I haven't seen any data on it, and I don't know what you're hearing from folks you teach meditation to. Um, and, and I guess I would pose that to you, Sharon, because you teach to a pretty diverse community. But I would ima- I could see where it would be, and in some of the research that I've done for this, anecdotally you hear that there that pe- it, people in minority communities are reporting very high levels of stress over this election. Yeah, and and I think it points to what you were talking about earlier, is it's not necessarily about issues that are being pointed to, although some of it is immigrant rights and things like that. But what it's pointing to is watching the ugliness arise to the top. We are now seeing people are feeling safer to come out and explore some really dangerous territory um, that was kind of in the dark before. So... As far as I know, with people of color, we're talking about race and, and gender and sexual orientation and all kinds of people are feeling very unsafe because they're seeing the hatred that exists um, that was behind closed doors and it isn't anymore. David, you you are actually going to one of the reasons we're, we had you on the podcast is, well, you're, you're my friend. That's part of it. But also because you're actually doing some reporting on this issue. And I don't know if you started your reporting or what you're finding. Uh, can you just share uh, your early thoughts on this? 
Sure. Well, Shameless Plug, the new column, Meditation for Real Life, is a, a weekly column that tries to very succinctly talk about how someone can take a mindful approach to really specific situations. So, so far, some of them have been a little whimsical, uh, having your morning cup of coffee, uh, sitting at a stoplight, but being on the subway, using the Facebook, su- exactly. I'm going to amplify your shameless plug because it's awesome. I just think it's awesome that the New York Times is doing this, um, uh, and and really, it's because of you. Um, and so, kudos to you and to the Times for doing it. Thank you. And if I could digress just a little further, it's part of this much more robust suite of meditation and mindfulness offerings that the Times is now starting to support. Uh, it launched a few months ago with a guide, How to Meditate, in which Sharon was a great contributor, and we offer for free um, very step-by-step instructions on how to start basic mindfulness meditation. It includes audio teachings by Sharon and another teacher, Tara Brock. Uh, now we have the weekly column, Meditation for Real Life. And then this past weekend, we launched virtual reality meditation oh, yeah, really on cool. the NYT VR app with another spirit rock teacher, Mark Coleman, who's a real expert in nature meditation. So we transport you to some of these amazing places. So if the election is stressing you out, strap on your Samsung Oculus Rift <laughs> goggles or your Google Cardboard and transport yourself to the beautiful ocean and listen to some mindfulness meditation there. Um, but One of the things we're going to have to address in the coming weeks is how to be mindful with the election, how to be mindful in the voting booth. So indeed, Joanna and I have started emailing back and forth about what a mindful approach to voting might be. And and rather than me try to paraphrase, I'll kick it back to Joanna for, for some instructions of how to actually bring a mindful attitude to the voting booth and to this really weighty decision um, that many people, hopefully everyone in this country, is going to have to make. Um, and it's it's a pivotal decision, and I think it brings up lots of serious issues about one's own personal responsibility, about civic engagement. Uh, and you know, for those who try to think through a Buddhist framework sometime, I mean, this is Dharma in action. It's bodhicitta. It's how do we actually practice in the world? And at this moment, that means voting. But what, so, so Joanna, if, what, if, how do you, how do you vote? Yeah, and well, how do you do that mindfully in, in from from this sort of meditative slash Buddhist perspective? Yeah, I guess it comes down to being informed, right? Because there's some maybe there's something that we can agree with, but it's also not only about the president. <laughs> there's other things that we're voting for. There's other values that we're voting for. Um, and I'm all about grassroots. You know, I'm all about making it happening in our community, um, making it happen where we can. And sometimes, I mean, when we look at the mindfulness practice, a lot of times I like to put things in categories of what can I control and what can't I control. Sort of if we're looking at, you know, maybe the first noble truth of suffering, it's old age, sickness and death as a given. And then we look at the idea of, well, what is in my jurisdiction? And there are some places where, I've come to the understanding and I help some of my students understand that where we there are places we can't do anything and there are places we really can. And so putting energy into those places um, seems really important to me. You know, I, I, the Buddhists spend a lot of time talking about impermanence. Mm-hmm. But this may be a case where impermanence is your friend because November, <laughs> November 8th is going to come and go. It's going to come and go. Absolutely. And then what? Exactly. It's not it's not the end. We don't know um, how this is going to affect us. And I'm actually honestly happy to see some of the true um, identities and colors in our country because now I know where to go and I know where not to go and I know what needs to be worked on. 
What's your view on what we were discussing before about impermanence? I thought you were going to say that the whole next administration will come and go. Well, that's true too, <laughs> that, right? Not just the day. It's like, yeah. thank it's God, it's the ninth. You know, yeah. like I don't have to watch those things anymore. I do think there. Uh, Joanna and I were doing a, um, uh, uh, we were taping a uh, some uh, uh, an amazing course for the Ten Percent Happier app yesterday on something co- not related to the election. But uh, one of the people we had a little audience there, and one of the people in the audience was saying that he found himself to be sort of addicted to his you know, uh, uh, hourly dose of outrage by checking his Twitter feed for the latest thing in the election. Yeah. Uh, how would you, what would your advice be about sort of mindful consumption of election-related information? Oh, I think it, you need to self-monitor. I mean, you know, and, and understand that, uh, like, blowing out and, and just being overwhelmed is not going to help anybody. And, and it is addictive. And, and so it's, it's kind of a discipline of like saying, well, I'm only going to do it this much or, or whatever. Um, or when I do it and I know it's going to be overwhelming, then I am then going to take five minutes and just breathe or something. And um, But I think, you know, it's very interesting that prospect of, of the ninth. Like what if your candidate loses and, and you're facing uh, an administration that you really didn't want to see happen? And then impermanence really is your friend. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, it's also something about rising up out of like hope and fear and hope and fear and hope and fear and attachment, needing it to be a certain way and aversion and attachment, aversion, attachment, aversion, and having a sense of your values and the things you can do. And uh, it doesn't always have to be in, in a kind of vast um, national way. It might be your neighbor. You know, it might have something to do with how you in, you take care of your neighbor who's going downhill or something and uh, whatever it is. It could be that um, we forget how we talk to people day to day, also figures, not just in these sort of like hypermanic, intense, you know, overwhelming times. And um, that would be a good reminder for the ninth, you know. You, I, what, I, one of the many things I like about what you about the about the foregoing uh, is that you're really framing this election, which a lot of us are viewing through a kind of negative and difficult lens, as a great opportunity to practice. Mm-hmm. There's just so much grist for this particular mill. I like that. Yeah, well, I mean, especially if you if you are devoted to something like loving kindness practice, you're kind of up against it. You know, it's like, <laughs> may almost all beings be happy. Let's see, here are the, here are the 50 I'd immediately like to leave out, you know. <laughs> This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier.
You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. And one of the reasons I think this is so charged is because we're not we're not rooting for our favorite baseball team here. I was reflecting on my own unfriending of my friend and and realized I was trying to just think about why why did I really do that? And one of the things as I sat here is I realized I am of the opinion that he is promoting and supporting a candidate and by extension a a policy and a platform increases human suffering. And that's why it's so tough for me to, 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 to bear that. And I suspect he probably feels the same way uh, on the other side of the aisle. And, and when we get to that level of, I actually believe that what you're doing is going to have significant harmful impacts for all sorts of people and issues, and is going to really extend the realm of human suffering on this planet that's not so easy just to, you know, um, <laughs> meditate away. Yeah. Well, nobody's talking about meditating it away here. We're just talking about meditating it, using meditation as a way not to let it, yourself get so carried away. Of course. But I guess I'm trying to make the point. It's, it's Stakes a, are high. It, it's, a, it's a more intense sort of personal suffering than being on a crowded subway car. Yes. Yes. Yeah. No, I hear you. I do. Jo- Joanna, on, on the on the issue of uh, of David's unfriending, one of your specialties is Buddhist ethics, uh, which sounds a little dry, actually, but is incredibly interesting. Uh, not at all. No, not at all. It's basically about like how do you use mindfulness in a way that impacts your behavior in the world and treatment of others. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the precepts or guidelines in the, uh, that, that's talked about in Buddhist ethics is something called right speech. Mm-hmm. In other words, and speech is a really tough area to apply mindfulness because we're constantly just popping off in relationship to the last thing to the thing the last person said or we're we're not listening and just planning our next brilliant retort uh, or interrupting people etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So it, I guess it's a, a two level question which is you know in in talking about these issues what if I'm in a marriage where my spouse has an opposing view, how do you talk about this reasonably? And then how do you talk about it on social media when the filters are all gone and people, you know, you can't actually see the face of the person you're talking to? Yeah. I mean, I really like to consider myself a a diverse person and an open-minded person. And it's easy for someone to say that when everybody agrees with them, right? Like, Uh I'm super diverse. I love everybody, especially those that are on my side. And so what I think that, you know, for me in terms of, Listening and being in a real relationship with somebody or the world is a certain level of curiosity where we're actually having to deeply listen. Because what I'm finding is I actually want to know what's going on for people who actually aren't like-minded to me. I'm curious. I want to hear what they have to say. And I want to hear it in a very um, and as open-hearted way as I possibly can, open-minded, whatever we want to call it. Um, and I find that by 
me connecting to my personal mindfulness, my core values, um, one, the strength of my practice is good enough where I'm not shaken that easily. So I, one of the things that we begin to do as we cultivate a practice is we cultivate a lot of personal trust. We can trust ourselves to not lose it. Right. Like I can trust myself that I can I can't hold. Trust myself, just OK, so, you know. so so we cultivate and we grow. Right. Yeah. And 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 one of the things I have learned is I have a level of trust now, self-trust. And what that allows me to do is to actually deeply be with somebody else, even when they don't agree with me, even when they're totally different. Um, now. What happens in the in the eyes, it's been really hard for me to watch um, my black brothers get assassinated, you know, in the last year. It's difficult. It doesn't make it easy. I have a hard time going, oh, yeah, I understand that happening. Do I understand the culture and the social structure and the conditioning and all of those things that got us to this place? Yeah, that's how I can use my awareness. That's how I can widen my view. Yeah, no, I, I hear all that, and thank you for all that. For those of us who don't have the trust that you described and mm-hmm. haven't done the, the, the breadth and depth of practice that you mm-hmm. have – uh, any blocking and tackling basic advice for how to have a conversation about this stuff without going off the rails, both uh, IRL, as the kids say, and on the Internet? Yeah. I mean, I, I have a lot of friends right now who are just going off of Facebook. They're just not on it right now. They're not on Twitter because they're finding it's not helpful. All it is is agitation. It's not informing them. It's not making them wiser. It's not making them... You know, if we just sit back and are only getting irritated and we're calling ourselves activists because we're reposting something that's, you know, inflammatory, um, my recommendation is, yeah, be active and actually do something like move into the realm of where you can actually be helpful instead of just getting irritated because it doesn't actually help. So that would be one piece of advice is, is maybe if you know that. Right now, it's not a good time for you to be on social media, then maybe not. And stay out of conversations with people that you really love and care about that might not be um, useful right now. And what are the basics of, of um, right speech? Can you just walk us through? Because mm-hmm. uh, you have, a, yeah. you have a, a great shtick on this. I do. It's not a shtick. <laughs> it's, it's right. So is it true? Th- right. So these are the, these are the filters these are through some which you, core, yeah. yeah. So right, right speech would be, is it true? Is it useful? Is it timely? Is it um, kind? And is it gossip or slander? So really paying attention to why and when it's necessary to talk. And the only way we can pay attention is not through our reaction and not the habitual stimulus. We have to pay attention through sort of the filter and sensor of which is our mindfulness. So this is a really hard thing to do. So how do we even begin? We begin by putting time in on the cushion, right? Because what we're doing is we're conditioning our mind to see clearly when something difficult arises or when something fantastic arises. And so it's if we're conditioning, just like we're conditioning or learning anything, a sport, an instrument, a new language, whatever it is that we want to learn how to do for the first time, we have to really practice. We do it and we do it and we do it until it becomes some kind of second nature or it starts to get easier over time. So patience is a big part of this. You know, it's a t- it's a time sport. <laughs> we really need to um, put an effort into really re 
reconditioning, deconditioning, um, maybe old and not so helpful habit patterns. I'm still working on it. Uh, Sharon, <laughs> what would you say? Because I think this is a real issue in many people's lives mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. How could, how can you, you use perhaps even just a nascent meditation practice for those mm-hmm. of us who are mm-hmm. just doing five minutes a day maybe mm-hmm. to help us in conversations one-on-one with somebody who disagrees with us, maybe even our uh, uh, spouse or partner, mm-hmm. or on the internet when we're you know just typing away. And again, as, as, as I keep saying, you know, the filters are often gone because you, you, you don't have to deal with the immediate emotional ramifications of seeing somebody else's face. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think those are actually, you know, to pick up on what Joanna was saying, I think those are two different scenarios. Because in the internet, you can say, the cost is too high. You know, like, look what's happening in my body. Look at the level of agitation I'm at. I haven't slept, you know, <laughs> like, I haven't gotten my work done. It's like, I have to finish the book, you know, whatever. She's referring to the fact that she's had a book she's been <laughs> trying to finish for a while, <laughs> which you just to, finished. I did. Well, they, they told me I need uh, two paragraphs to end it. So All right. Nice. I got to get off the internet, <laughs> for God's sake. You know, so it's like, <laughs> yeah, it is nice. Thank you. Um, so, you know, there's... Uh, there's a level of choice there that comes from self-awareness. Like, I am trashed. You know, this this may not be worth it. In meaningful relationships, relationships where, you know, um, we need to continue the relationship, uh, it's something else. And I think it has to do with kind of mindfulness of one's motivation. Like, what do I really want? Like, what would be the outcome that I could reasonably seek out of this conversation right now? Do I want to vanquish them? Do I want to be seen as right? Uh, do I want a resolution? Do I want peace, like mutual respect? And it, it's always useful to see one's motivation, which you can. It doesn't take endless, endless, endless practice to just kind of flip your awareness um, to that because that will make a big difference. And then awareness of your body, mindfulness of the body is a great uh, set of clues because you can feel the agitation arising, not after you've responded or you've, mm-hmm. you know, just yelled out some, you know, some answer. But uh, when it's beginning to emerge, you can feel it, and and you can recognize this is like a danger zone. You know, this is this is a place that's not that healthy, and from which to continue this conversation. I often th- describe it as like an inner meteorologist. Yeah. Because you can yeah. be in the middle of a conversation and then you notice, oh, uh, there's a hurricane that's about to make that's landfall right. here. Right. And, and right. maybe I should say something polite and extricate myself or take a pause or whatever. David, you, we, when we were emailing in advance of this, you know, one of the things you talked about that that, that was really interesting is that um, there's a, a tension in Buddhist circles between a sort of a detachment and engagement. Can you just hold forth a little bit on that? Well, it's just what I was thinking about right now, and something Joanna said prompted me to recognize that maybe in those moments when I'm encountering either someone I'm close to or a stranger who I'm sensing that real disagreement with, the, the appropriate course of action isn't necessarily to try to vanquish them. It's perhaps in this situation not, not even to necessarily engage. If, if Joanna instructed us that, you know, Take action, yes, but that doesn't necessarily mean trying to convince someone that they're wrong. There are lots of other ways to take action. And in the context of an election cycle, it could be registering people to vote. It could be promoting issues you care about, be it uh, you know women's rights or climate change or whatever it might be. 
solely on the basis of the importance of that issue, uh, and in this context, perhaps its ability, if the appropriate policies are pursued, to reduce suffering, rather than personalizing it and saying it's this candidate or the other candidate, which I think is one of the things that's made this all so personal and so charged, is we've conflated all these issues into individuals, uh, and in this case, two you know, incredibly charged and highly controversial individuals, which make it very difficult to actually see the issues for what they are, if you will. The two least popular presidential candidates in the history of polling. Indeed. And, and so maybe taking action means, yes, engaging with the electoral process, but, but not uh, necessarily on behalf of the candidates themselves. What about the, the, the – sorry, go ahead. I, I just want to say the other thing that I was realizing, the other way I've been using meditation over the last several weeks in particular, is specifically to just stop thinking about the election. I mean, like, <laughs> if you're actually practicing, you're not on Twitter. And so I found myself – I mean, just in a, in a pu- almost self-medicating kind of way. And I know this, you know this is not exactly how you're supposed to meditate, but it, it feels good to just take time and be mindful walking in nature rather than like bashing my head against the screen reading the latest outrage on Twitter. And and that has actually been a, a useful way for me to just cultivate my own well-being is just the, the, the beauty and simplicity of basic practice, you know, in its own right, on its own, not even in relation to the election cycle, has been... Um, very restorative. What? Just let me just go back to the thing you were talking about in our email, which is you know in Buddhist circles historically there's been this uh, this tension between you know we we now have this movement of engaged Buddhism, but um, which is really interesting, and I, don't, I wouldn't claim to know much about it. But um, there are other Buddhists who like live in a cave and aren't really engaged with the world. What, what are your thoughts on that uh, dynamic? I think you're right to say that certainly in in this age, and I'm no expert either, uh, there's, I think, the appropriate recognition that we live in complex times, and those of us uh, certainly with the position to to influence friends or the media uh, have a responsibility. And again, I always just come back to the framework of are we doing what we can to reduce suffering when we have the opportunity to? Uh, and you know, by engaging, that's that's the way we can start to you know essentially put our fingers on the scale, if you will. Whereas, I mean, I, I remember one of my first teachers. I was 20 at the time. I was in India, and I was very swept up and kind of intoxicated by the romance of um, the, the monastic culture. And I was like, maybe I should stay. <laughs> maybe this is a good idea. And he said, you weren't born in India. Like your karma is not to be a monk. Your karma is to go back and do your thing in the United States. Cover M&A for the New York Times. Yeah, thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I think for those of us here um, who are, you know, uh, the laity in in the world but do also try to engage with this perspective, yeah, there is an obligation to um, find the ways in which we can uh, do our part to participate in civil society, civic society. Um, but again, to go back to what I was saying earlier, maybe a way uh, – I haven't thought through this terribly well – but maybe a more skillful way in a highly charged election like this is to focus on issues rather than personalities. Yeah. You have a one-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old, uh, neither of 
whom I would guess is super engaged in this election, uh, nor is my one and a half year old, who's he's mostly engaged with his daddy finger videos on on YouTube. Um, uh, you, however, have um, Joanna. You have a seventeen and a nineteen year old, mm-hmm. and so I, I just wonder what your thoughts are for parents and how to deal with all of this. Your kids are a little older. You don't have to really monitor their media, and you can't monitor their media mm-hmm. consumption. But but mm-hmm. generally speaking, as a parent, what are your thoughts about how to handle uh, children in this environment? Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of communication, a lot of discussion, a lot of uh, surrounding and supporting them with people that they can count on and that we're not only seeing the devastation or one side, uh, again, getting them involved, having them be a part of a positive movement. And even if that just means, you know, doing something locally. So, yeah, really bolstering, if I can point out, bolstering sort of the wholesome, the skillful, the positive, the, the ways and things that we can do versus pointing to the negative and hopeless. Because it's out there. You know, I mean, we can find it anywhere in any way that we want to. Um, and just not making that the primary thing that's happening. Well said. Um, what are you doing about your own uh, media consumption and social media consumption, Joanna? Yeah. I'm not big on I haven't really been big on it. I'm not on Instagram or Twitter or any yeah. of those. Facebook mm-hmm. is my big thing and it's pretty irregular. So <sighs> Yeah, I mean that's mostly it. I'm just not on it that much. I'm not that interested. You know, I was a gossiper when I was a kid and it just feels like a bigger way to gossip and a bigger way to spread lies and a bigger way to be disillusioned. And, you know, is it true? Like, is it even true what we're hearing? So, yeah, I like to try to stick to factual um, information if possible. And, yeah, I'm kind of not on it that much. ABC News is a great place for factual information. (laughs) So is the New York Times. Uh, I'll confess here. uh, I, I had the luxury, the, the the privilege, thanks to the New York Times, of taking paternity leave for five weeks uh, late in the summer. And I really disconnected. Uh, I, I deleted all social media apps from my phone. I checked email very irregularly. And I basically hung out in nature with my kids. And it was a profound and beautiful experience. And mm-hmm. since I have returned, especially in the last month, I have become completely addicted to election news mm-hmm. in a really unhealthy way, which is why I was saying, I mean, I'm, I'm having to, to be even more er, dedicated to practice uh, simply because it's a way for me to turn it off. And it's it's a powerful, um, I'm having a powerful relationship with the news in a way that I haven't in a long time. Uh, and, and I'm working on it. But I, I don't have a I don't have an easy answer. Yeah, I'm addicted to it too. I mean, I'm con- I mean, it's bar- it's my job, a. But b. Even when I'm not working, I'm just constantly looking at my you know the at me my email feed because we just at ABC within within the building we're just constantly emailing. A, a, we have reporters out in the field who are constantly gathering information, so I'm always looking at that, looking at my favorite uh, websites, uh, including ABC News and the New York Times, and and. Uh, um, yeah, but I've found that meditation actually is quite useful. You know, if I'm, if I, you know, that that internal meteorologist that I mentioned before, that I feel myself getting enervated, and sometimes I eat a half a bag of a popcorn, um, and sometimes I just let it ride. You know, but see, if we feel ourselves getting enervated, and I do, I mean, I have enough self awareness 
to to notice that my body does not like the way it feels. Mm-hmm. My brain mm-hmm. does not like the way it feels when I'm doing this, and yet I'm, I still do it. <laughs> well, but there's a place, you know, for what um, this venerable old Tibetan Lama, uh, high up in the Himalayas, once called uh, short moments many times. Mm-hmm. You know, don't think, oh, I must like drop the the phone and go sit for 15 minutes. But this is a moment to take three breaths and just step back, you know, to get a little perspective, um, to kind of return to your body. And uh, those feelings of, of discomfort might be even more acute, but they're there. So why not feel them? And uh, and then you have a choice. You know, you're coming from a different place. So I, I think there's a lot to be said about the power of just short moments many times. Um, because there may be, even if your habit is just five minutes, you may not feel you have five minutes in that particular moment to have a formal dedicated practice. I also think it's great the way you use practice. It's not, it's not sort of lower or lesser to think, you know, uh, it's taking me away from Twitter and, and these other things, which I too am addicted to. I was thinking there are three addicts in this room with Joanna, so maybe she can do an intervention. Um, you know, uh, but I, I think it's it's – um, that sense of relief or, or release also registers. Like, look at this. You know, I'm not on the treadmill. I'm not doing the the particular thing that I usually do for the sense of satisfaction. Um, and then I think if you take those short moments uh, and you and you go back to it, say, you also have some perspective because it's so interesting. Like, what am I looking for? Mm, like, exactly. do I want to know something before anybody else knows it? Like. What's that? Or, you know, I think it's because of helplessness. It really is. I feel like the information is an antidote to Uh to the helplessness in some way. Okay, so that's a tremendous insight. And that brings us back to what we're all, you know, returning to is like, uh, let's look at that feeling of helplessness because that's a big problem. Mm -hmm. And that leads to withdrawal and apathy and, you know, cynicism and all kinds of things. So, what can I do so that? I'm not just buying into that feeling of helplessness. And it may seem like a very small action, but it's important. Mm -hmm. It's important to identify, and it's important to do. I love what you said about short moments many times, because we can't just hurl ourselves into the lotus position every time we get annoyed. You know, like we, you got to be able to do it right there, right then. So maybe just like a... Uh, a deep breath or, or just noticing that you are breathing whenever right. uh, you get triggered um, can can give you perhaps 10% more of a chance. Uh, That's a very uh, interesting number. Yes. I don't know where it came from. Karma. Um, give you more of a chance to sort of comport yourself in a way that you would later be proud of. That's right. That's exactly right. One thing I'll say about what we all can agree is a difficult election season. It's nice to have good friends to go through it with. Yeah. So thank you very much for coming in. Really appreciate it. And just a reminder, everybody, that, uh, well, first of all, that David's going to continue to cover Meditation for Real Life on the New York Times. Um, plus, he has this amazing guide for beginners right up there on the site. Uh, and you're going to see some from him some coverage about election stress as well. Um, and uh, you can get the free guided meditations on, like, how to... Write the ship internally on the 10% Happier app from Joanna and from Sharon and from Jeff up in Canada. Um, We thought bringing a Canadian in would give us some sort of balance. Um, (laughs) 
We'll see how that goes. Uh, and uh, and if you again, if you don't uh, on if you don't have an Apple device, uh, you can get the guided meditations on ten percent happier dot com. Thanks again for listening. As always, thanks again for everybody for participating. If you like what we do, you can rate us, review us, recommend us to people. We always love that. And uh, we'll see you next time. Good luck until November eighth, everybody. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. <laughs> If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.